A former NBA prospect, standing six feet nine inches tall, walked away from his car and was never seen again. Where is Rico Harris? I'm Charlie, and this is Crime Lines. Welcome back to Crime Lines. Today's episode is a case that I know has been covered a lot. And it was even covered on Disappeared. In my opinion, it's one of the better Disappeared episodes. And I think credit for that goes to Rico Harris's fiance, his mother, his friend, and also the detective who seems just so dedicated to uncovering what really happened to Rico Harris. So obviously, the interviews from Disappeared were a source for this episode, but I also used newspaper archives, older news coverage, things that I usually use. But I just wanted to make a point to point out an incredible article by Flinder Boyd at Fox Sports. It's just an incredible long-form article. It was so well-written. I really recommend people read that, especially if you just like reading well-structured articles, if you're a little bit of a journalism nerd. In this case of Rico Harris, I think that his background, maybe even more so than in a lot of cases I've covered, really needs to be established so we can set up and understand what happens later. Rico was the oldest of four children. His father, Henry, was a basketball player. He was a star at the college level where he attended at Idaho State. He moved on to play semi-pro in California, which is where he met Rico's mom, Margaret. Henry's background as a child included an abusive father. Henry continued that cycle of abuse with his own family, and Margaret and the kids dealt with emotional abuse and physical abuse. Eventually, Margaret left Henry and moved herself and her four kids to Alhambra, California, which is where Rico mostly grew up. And they lived in just a tiny duplex while she worked to try to support these kids. After the split, Henry was in and out of the kids' lives. It sounds like he showed up just enough to cause disruption because mostly he was gone. But Margaret told Fox Sports that Rico had some personality traits that she was surprised he had, such as patience and enthusiasm, because she didn't consider herself a patient or enthusiastic person, and Henry sure wasn't. So in spite of this rough early start, Rico still just had these traits as part of who he was. He did struggle with social anxiety, particularly in high school, and he wasn't really a strong student initially. His high school girlfriend, Melinda, helped him with his homework, and he managed to pull up his grades quite a bit. Rico was a big guy, shooting up heads above his classmates, He started playing basketball on the high school team a little later than a lot of players. He didn't start until his junior year, even though he had played when he was younger. Between his size and just natural talent that he probably inherited from his dad, he just stood out on the court from the beginning. And this helped him get more confidence and brought him out of his shell. 
when colleges came to his high school games looking to recruit, their eyes were on Rico. He was initially offered a scholarship at UCLA, but it had to be withdrawn when he didn't score high enough on his SATs. Rico went instead to Arizona State, and he went as a Prop 48 candidate. So basically, Prop 48 is the reason Rico lost that scholarship to UCLA. It sets out the minimum grade point average and SAT or ACT score that a high schooler will need to play at a Division I school. As a Prop 48 candidate, Rico was able to practice with the team and take classes, but he couldn't play his freshman year. He had to focus on classes to get himself academically eligible to play. And this is the first fork in the road we're going to come to. Because while Rico finding his place on the basketball court was a blessing in his life, gave him focus, direction, confidence, it was also a little bit of a curse when he didn't have it. Because it was so much of his identity, it was so much of an anchor in his life, and he lost a lot of who he thought he was when he was ineligible to play. Those who knew Rico when he was at Arizona State have said he had a hard time adjusting to being away from home for the first time. This is not uncommon for first-year college students to be homesick, and he called his mom pretty much every day. Then in March of 1996, so we're talking his second semester at ASU, Rico was arrested along with two other basketball players. Two women went to the police and accused the men of rape. The two other men were charged with false imprisonment and sexual assault, but Rico was only charged with the false imprisonment. Eventually, investigators found the women's stories to be too inconsistent and conflicting, and they didn't feel they could move forward on this case. So all the charges were dropped, but not before this alleged incident was spread all over campus. Rico was supposed to be eligible to play in his sophomore year, But following this arrest, he was told they were going to have him sit out that first semester as a sophomore as well. Rico was not enjoying this college experience. He had just had a run-in with the law, and now he was going to be benched another semester. So he decided to drop out of ASU and go home. He enrolled in L.A. City College in the fall of 1997. This was a pretty unusual move for a student athlete. He was set to play at a Division I school, and he left it for a community college. If we look outside of basketball, this seemed like a good move for Rico. He was closer to home. He would have some time to find himself again. He would get out from under the stigma of the arrest, whether the allegations were founded or not. Sometimes we have to prioritize things in a way that doesn't always make sense to everyone else. So Rico took L.A. City College to their first state championship win in basketball 
And that caught the eye of recruiters from these Division I schools. But Rico decided instead to just apply for the 1998 NBA draft. And he was seen as a favored pick. He was invited to a pre-draft camp that was focused on the top prospects. Then Rico suddenly, just a few days before he was supposed to go to this camp, pulled his name out of the draft. The only reason he gave was that he didn't feel like he was ready. So instead, he was going to transfer schools and attend the University of Rhode Island. For those who don't know the geography of the United States, he was living in L.A. and he was looking to go to Rhode Island, which is about as far apart as you can get and still be in this country. Rico had one class left to pass to make that transfer happen, and he suddenly stopped attending that class, so he failed it. So here we are with two dreams on the table, the NBA or playing at a Division I school. And he made both of those opportunities disappear. So what we can see is a young man who is trying to figure things out and the path that he feels he's supposed to be on may not be the one he wants. So he went back to the community college for a second year and he said that it was a mistake. He had nothing but conflict with his teammates and he didn't feel like the coaches were managing the situation well. And he told this to the LA Times. Because I'm not the only one with my head cocked to the side as I'm reading about Rico self-sabotaging his opportunities. So remarkable were Rico's choices that there was a 1998 article in the LA Times about him and about these choices. Rico did transfer to a Division I school, just not Rhode Island. He went to Cal State Northridge. A coach who had been watching Rico throughout his college career told the LA Times in that same article I referenced that Rico is a Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, and he wasn't sure Cal State was going to be a great move. And it certainly was not. So Rico was looking for basketball to give him that identity, that confidence, and it wasn't working. He wasn't getting along with his teammates. He wasn't getting along with his coaches. He was suspended twice in his first season. The second time, he never went to the office to talk to the coach about it in order to be reinstated, and then he just dropped out of school. Now the NBA was not interested in Rico anymore. He wasn't the young standout he used to be. The constant ups and downs of his college career certainly didn't help. So he ended up going semi-pro both in San Diego and in St. Louis. And then in 2000, he got a break. He was recruited by the Harlem Globetrotters. Now, the Globetrotters are an exhibition team. This isn't the NBA. This isn't a professional competitive team. The Globetrotters are just as much about theater and stunts and performance as they are about basketball skill. But all of their players are incredibly skilled. 
It is all the fun of basketball and performing, but with a lot less of the pressure to win, 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 win. It seemed like this could have been a really good fit for Rico. But after only one month with the team, he was injured. Now, not on the court, but while he was out for the night. He got into some sort of argument while he was in his car. He could have driven off, but instead he decided to confront the people. Now, what they saw was a six foot nine athletic man walking towards them. So one of them grabbed a baseball bat. This person ended up hitting Rico in the back of his head with a bat. Rico got back into his car after this and drove himself home. But almost immediately after, he started having issues with migraines and with his balance. So at this point, he is 23 years old, and this was the end of basketball. I'm sure it wouldn't surprise anyone listening to learn now that Rico was also dealing with addiction. He was a young man dealing with the long-term effects of childhood trauma. He was dealing now with losing that thing, basketball, that gave him purpose, a sense of self, a future career. Once Rico didn't even have the basketball season to try to stay sober for, his alcohol use escalated, and then he was using drugs. He was arrested a number of times, often for public intoxication. One time when Rico was arrested for a public intoxication-type charge, he was tossed in lockup long enough, you know, to sober up. While he was there, he came face-to-face with his father. Even though Rico was playing his father's favorite sport through high school and college, his father had never once shown up for a game, and he hardly even recognized Rico. This meeting in jail maybe could have been a wake-up call, but it also seemed like it triggered some of Rico's pent-up anger about his childhood, and he started spiraling. In 2007, at the age of 30, Rico overdosed on prescription pills. He was rushed to the hospital to have his stomach pumped. Now this, the accidental overdose, that was a wake-up call. It scared Rico. After he was released from the hospital, he went to rehab. And after rehab, he went to support group meetings as frequently as he needed to, For a while, he was going daily. He processed a lot of the anger in a pretty short amount of time, and some of that anger was directed inward for throwing away his career when he was younger, for the decisions he made as an older teen that derailed his future in basketball. So let's fast forward to 2012. Rico was 35 years old, he was sober, and he was working a security-type job. He was living with a friend who was also in recovery, so this was really helpful to both of them to have an accountability partner in the house. 
And it also meant Rico wouldn't be tempted by a roommate who brought alcohol into the home. One day in 2012, he met a woman named Jennifer Song. She was in California on business. She lived in Seattle. She worked as an insurance broker. From Alhambra to Seattle is a good 18-hour drive. But the two really hit it off, and they decided just to see where things would go. They were in contact on the phone every day. They flew back and forth on long weekends. The usual long-distance relationship things. Rico and Jennifer started talking about marriage. Since taking their relationship to a higher level meant one of them would have to uproot everything and move, they really took these conversations very seriously. So after about two years of this long-distance relationship, Rico decided he would move up to Seattle and move in with Jennifer in the fall of 2014. She owned a home. She had an established career. It just made more sense for Rico to be the one who moved. There was also another contributing factor, though it's unclear how much it contributed and how much it was just the push Rico needed to make a decision. Rico's roommate was not a fan of Rico's relationship with Jennifer at all. He eventually told Rico that he had to either pick living in the apartment with him or pick Jennifer. I don't know how this roommate thought this ultimatum was going to go, and maybe he thought that his concerns about the relationship were persuasive enough to have Rico reconsider. I mean, his concerns may have even had to do with Rico's sobriety. Jennifer had gone to California to visit in the summer of 2014, shortly before Rico decided to move, and she noticed his room was a mess, and he just seemed off. He confessed to her that he had relapsed with alcohol, and he had been drinking. So this may have also contributed to his roommate thinking the relationship wasn't a good one. But whatever his thinking, Rico picked Jennifer and decided to move to Seattle with her. Possibly to avoid a confrontation, Rico just left the apartment in the middle of the night. Rico headed to Seattle in September and moved right into Jennifer's home. He had left behind a lot of his belongings in California. He really just packed up personal stuff. Jennifer had furniture. She had decor, pots and pans, all of those things. So he didn't really need to bring his own. He also moved before he had found a job. So there was some early stress when he moved in. He felt like he was just living in her home with her things and not contributing anything. There was also probably some stress of just learning to exist together because they were used to only being together for a weekend at a time, sometimes going a month or two without seeing each other. So now it was all day, every day. Things hadn't quite settled down by early October, but they were at least moving in that direction. Jennifer had connected Rico with a friend of hers, and he was able to give Rico a job. The friend was a property appraiser, and he thought Rico would do well moving up in the company, so they set up a formal interview for October 11th about a new position within the company. 
Rico decided that he needed to go home to Alhambra to get some of his things. So on October 8th, he got in his car and he left. Jennifer wasn't entirely sure why he was going, but she had the impression that he wanted to talk to his mom, that there were some unresolved issues, probably from his childhood, maybe even thoughts towards the future. He really needed to talk to his mom about them. While he was driving from Seattle to Alhambra, he talked to a friend on the phone and he seemed totally fine. He talked about the job interview. He talked about getting married. He just seemed happy, normal, nothing out of the ordinary. At 2 p.m. on Thursday, October 9th, he showed up at his mom's house, and she was worried that he had been drinking. But he took one of his brothers to dinner. He gave him a cell phone. And then after dinner, he wanted to talk to his mom privately. Margaret hasn't said exactly what they talked about, but she did say she had a feeling he wasn't getting what he wanted out of the conversation, and she didn't feel like they ended the conversation with Rico in a really great place. Rico packed a few of his sentimental items from the home, and he seemed like he was about to just turn around and drive back to Seattle. So remember, this is 18-hour drive. Except for a possible nap he took on the way from Seattle to Alhambra, Rico hadn't slept in probably 30 hours. Margaret told him, don't rush out the door, get some sleep, and leave in the morning. And she thought that's what he was going to do, and so she dozed off herself, but she woke to the phone ringing at 1 a.m., and it was Rico. He was already on the road. Someone who is up for this long makes me think he was taking something other than alcohol. His relapse with alcohol may have led to some drugs being reintroduced. It makes a lot of sense if you combine it with him wanting to talk to his mom and hash out some things from his past. I mean, it's hard when someone is in recovery to push through dealing with past trauma without falling back on the substances that they used to cope with that trauma. So here we are in the wee early morning hours of Friday, October 10th. After Rico hung up with his mother, he called Jennifer to tell her that he was on his way. And they stayed on the phone for a couple of hours, chatting until 3.30 in the morning or so. Rico told her he was going to pull over to take a nap. He wanted to go to the mountains to take this nap, but Jennifer told him that's a terrible idea. There wasn't any cell service out there, and those windy roads in the dark when he was already so tired, was just not a wise move. Rico agreed that he would go to a rest stop instead, but before he hung up, he did mention wanting to see the stars since he was now outside the lights of the city. Jennifer slept for a bit, and then around 8 a.m., she talked to Rico again, and at this point, he was outside of Sacramento getting gas. He sounded tired. He was about five and a half hours into his drive. And he also talked to his mother, saying he was getting food and he was going to rest. Jennifer and Margaret were both separately very worried about Rico. He was overtired. He shouldn't be driving. 
The whole trip seemed odd since it was last minute and he didn't stay in town very long, figuring it was a 36-hour round trip. So they both called him again during that day and he didn't answer. Jennifer did get a text or possibly a voicemail from Rico around 10.45 in the morning. The reporting is inconsistent on whether it was a text or a voicemail. It just said that he was sorry he missed a call that she had made, but everything was fine and he was thinking of her. Rico should have been to Seattle around 7 p.m. By 8 p.m., Jennifer had called Margaret. They agreed that they both would have expected him to have checked in and let them know what was going on, even if he was pulling over and was going to sleep for a few hours. So Jennifer suggested that they report a missing, but Margaret thought you had to wait to report adults missing, which is a fairly common misconception. So together they decided they'd wait. Then they didn't hear anything Saturday, Sunday, or Monday. On Monday, his car was found at a rest stop at Cache Creek. This is about two hours from where Rico had gotten gas. While it's on the way to Seattle in the sense that it is north of L.A., it was not the direct route up I-5 like he would have been expected to go. It is towards the mountains, and he did mention that to Jennifer. The patrolman who had seen the car on Monday noticed it because it wasn't parked properly in a spot. It was pulled right alongside some bushes with very little space between the car and the bushes. I mean, it was practically in the bushes. The next day, when the car was still there, the plates were then run. It was still registered to Rico's mom's address, so Alhambra police were dispatched to her house. When she found out the car was found and Rico wasn't with it, she filed a missing persons report. Rico's car was found, but with him nowhere to be seen, this missing persons report kicked off the full investigation. There was a ground search of the area starting on October 14th. The thought here was possibly Rico had wandered off, went exploring, and had gotten lost or hurt in the woods. Exposure wasn't as big of a concern since it usually stays in the 50s overnight that time of year and is in the upper 70s, lower 80s during the day. But had he gotten wet, like if he fell in the creek, that would have been a concern. The area is rough terrain and there's lots of wildlife. So really, just being out in the dark is a concern, even if the temperatures are fine, even if Rico was completely dry. So investigators started with a five-mile radius from the car and then expanded it. The only thing found was a large footprint in the wet silt near the creek and the insole of a very large tennis shoe. Rico wore a size 18 shoe, so this was very likely from him. What are the odds someone else with such large feet was in the area at the same time? It had been four days since Margaret and Jennifer had heard from Rico. However, the investigation would show 
that he was likely still in the area and alive after that. On Saturday morning, so October 11th, one day after his family had last heard from him, a passerby saw Rico sitting on a guardrail that was overlooking the creek, and he really wasn't that far from his car. Another person saw him around 8 a.m. walking along Route 16. Now, back when this show used to be Insight, I talked about eyewitnesses pretty frequently, and I think it's the Bible John episode where I went into the weeds with the research on it. So I'm not going to rehash it all except to remind everyone that generally the most important parts of an eyewitness account of a person would be the features the person has that are unusual. That's what the brain is imprinting most. What is different about this person? Investigators are pretty sure these sightings were both of Rico because he was a 300-pound, 6-foot-9 black man walking along a rural California highway. He would have stood out. Witnesses would remember him. Let's talk about evidence at the scene, starting with the car. The doors of the car were locked, but with the missing persons report, the police had permission to open it anyway and the inside was a mess, so much so that investigators initially thought someone had ransacked it. There were CDs and papers just scattered. The terrible parking job seemed like maybe it had been taken for a joyride as well, ransacked, and then dumped. The car had both a dead battery and it was out of gas, Had Rico driven straight from where he had gotten gas to the parking lot where his car was found, he should have still had plenty of gas left. There were no drugs or paraphernalia found in the car except for a small bindle-like item, which is used to package drugs. But there wasn't even residue left, so... It's unclear the significance of having basically clean drug packaging. There were two plastic bottles. One was empty and smelled like alcohol, and the other one had alcohol in it. Rico's wallet was in the car with all but one of his credit cards there. Any cash he might have had was gone, his driver's license was gone, and then again, that one Discover credit card. And a quick check showed that the missing credit card hadn't been used. Rico's cell phone was also missing, so the police checked his phone records, they got a map of his pings from the cell phone provider, and they narrowed it down to an area about 70 miles from where his car was found in Redwood Valley. Then investigators tracked down the person who actually had the phone. It was a couple and their grandson who had not just found the phone, but they found a backpack. And this backpack had the phone, it had the phone charger, and it had the jumper cables. It was found about 500 yards away from where Rico was seen sitting on the guardrail. This backpack was for sure Rico's backpack. His girlfriend said that he carried it kind of the way women carry purses. It went everywhere with him. So a search of the phone showed a selfie of Rico in front of the Yolo County welcome sign, and then there were some other photos of the creek. 
There was a video, though, and this is probably the most significant thing found there, and it was a video of Rico. It appeared to have been taken from inside the car at the rest stop. It was taken possibly and probably accidentally on Friday, October 10th, late at night. So this is after Margaret and Jennifer had spoken to Rico, and they were already concerned that they hadn't been in touch with him. That's when this video was taken. It has not been made publicly available, so I can only tell you how investigators described it. The video appears that the phone is sitting on the center console of the car. Music is playing, and Rico is singing along. He was ripping up papers and tossing the CDs around. So this showed proof that the car was not ransacked. Rico was the one who drove it to the site and trashed his car. So for investigators, this ruled out that someone else interfered with the car in this disappearance. With the car being out of gas and with a battery dead, is it possible that Rico sat there in the car running the engine until the gas tank emptied and then just sitting there with the car on until the battery died? Had he left the car running when he left it? I mean, this would be really odd behavior, as was throwing the CDs and the papers around. What wasn't found on the phone is also significant. There was no contact with anyone except known friends and family members. There were no unknown phone calls or text messages suggesting that he was meeting up with anyone. There was absolutely nothing like that. So with the backpack found, it's thought that maybe he left the backpack in a dry area while he went down to the creek for some reason. But something kept him from going back for his backpack. Like I said, he carried it like a purse, so why would he have left it behind? Because of Rico's history with drugs, his erratic behavior, the long stretches of being awake, and the bindle found in the car... The police also canvassed local areas that are known for drug sales, particularly meth. No one there saw Rico, or at least no one admitted to it. Back to this backpack, though, there is something in there that stood out to me, and that's the jumper cables. We know Rico's battery was dead when the car was found, so if Rico needed a jump, why would he take the cables with him to get help? Why wouldn't he leave them with his car? There are two explanations I have. One, he was under the influence and not thinking clearly, or someone came up to him telling him that they needed a jump, so he grabbed the cables and went with them. The backpack was discarded along the way because who knows. But the main theory of why the backpack was left behind has nothing to do with those jumper cables. It has to do with his phone. He left it behind so he couldn't be tracked to wherever he went next. Although two people did say they saw Rico, investigators believe more would have seen him had he walked terribly far on his own. The nearest gas station was a good half-hour drive away. So investigators do believe that at some point, Rico got into another car. I can't imagine pulling over for a six foot nine, 300 pound guy, but I'm a woman and wouldn't pick up any man from the side of the road. So if he got in another car, you have to assume that 
it had to have been someone who wouldn't have been that intimidated by him. So almost surely it would have been another man, possibly a truck driver. But this is just speculation. Even the police aren't sure that he did get into another car. It's just what makes the most sense. While the search was ongoing, but while no police were actively at the site where the car was found, there was a sighting of Rico. This is October 18th, around 5 a.m. So over a week since his family had last talked to him, a passerby saw a large man walking up toward the parking lot. He described the clothing, and it was consistent with what Rico was wearing when he had left his mother's house. On October 19th, so over a week since anyone had heard from Rico, size 18 footprints were spotted at the parking lot again. They had not been there before, and that entire parking lot had been searched for every scrap of evidence, so they would have been seen. Was this Rico? The investigators think it was. They think he was returning to his car. When he found that it was gone, he left again, and then who knows? On October 22nd, with nothing but a couple of footprints found, the search was scaled back. A few weeks after that, they did bring in some cadaver dogs. They had divers search some sinkholes in the creek in the event Rico had fallen in. Nothing was found. And during this entire process, Jennifer's in Seattle and Margaret is in Alhambra, and they're both really struggling with being so far from where everything was happening. They've also both expressed some frustration at the early press coverage of Rico's disappearance. They really feel that the drug angle was emphasized, possibly overemphasized. And once that comes up, people shut it off. People don't care as much. And we'd like to think, at least I would, that that's not true. But I've seen this with other podcasts. There is a podcast I bring up all the time, The Vanished. If she does too many cases where the person had a drug problem, you can just go in her group or on her page. You will see the posts of people saying literally that they don't care. So this was really hurtful to the family because Rico was clearly in danger somewhere. He has not been found since this time. So obviously something alarming happened and for people not to care because of his past was very, very frustrating. The police have said that regardless of Rico's past or present, they were following every lead. Even if other people think less of Rico or less of his status as a victim because drug use may have contributed to whatever happened, the investigation seems to still be pretty aggressive. In addition to searching the woods, the creek, and local communities, they've also searched homeless shelters and homeless camps, hoping to spot him if he is out there. They've done some pretty detailed media spots showing the locations and giving their theories, and I really think that that has helped. One of the things about this case that really stands out to me, and to a lot of people, is that Rico actually could still be alive. A lot of the cases we talk about when we're talking about disappearances, they seem like 
and abduction and foul play or possibly succumbing to the elements. And those are really the only options. But if that really was Rico looking for his car on October 18th, he was still alive and moving about on his own power a full week after he was last seen. There's no reason to believe he didn't just go back to wherever he had been for that week or hitchhiked along until he got somewhere else. Now, that said, it has been four and a half years. Even if he went on a bender or decided he made a mistake moving to Seattle or he decided he just needed time to be alone for a bit, would he really have stayed away from his family for four and a half years? Investigators largely ruled out foul play, or at least at the time he went missing, they did. There was no blood or signs of a struggle anywhere. His backpack was in good shape, and it didn't appear that someone had tried to take it from Rico forcefully. And being a big, strong guy, Rico likely would have put up a fight if someone did try to take it, and the backpack would have shown that. The only weird thing was that his car looked ransacked, but they have that video of Rico doing it himself. Rico was seen walking and sitting on the guardrail by himself. No one saw him with anyone else. Even if Rico left on his own, anything could have happened since then to explain why he hasn't contacted his family. But the cause of his disappearance is not believed to be homicide. Rico Harris has been missing since October 2014. He would be 42 years old today. He has brown eyes and black hair. He's most recognizable by his height of 6'9". He has tattoos on both of his biceps. At the time he went missing, he was wearing white jeans and a gray thermal shirt. If you have any information, you can call the Yolo County Sheriff's Department at 530-666-8282. Crimelines is made possible through support through Patreon. For $1 a month, you get every episode two days early and ad-free. For $3 a month, you also get an exclusive bonus episode. Another way to support the show is to simply share it with a friend or on social media. Thank you for listening.